Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming, uh, and thanks, Mira, for inviting me to uh, present my work in, in this seminar series. Um, I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to present my work to this particular audience. Um, the notion of repertoires has been central to my work for a number of years, uh, so I'd say my title today is uh, pretty accurate. I am really in pursuit of uh, repertoires uh, of news consumption uh, and analyzing how people use news media in everyday life. Uh, today I will uh, dwell on a study which is finished um, and then towards the end of the talk I'll tell you about how I'm researching a new type of repertoire during my stay at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. The first slide really is not telling you anything that you don't know. Uh, it's just a kind of preamble that we sort of set the context for what I'm going to talk about. But this is, I mean, I just came back from the ICA conference. I'd say that this is pretty much the, the first slide of all presentations I heard at the, uh, at the ICA. <clears throat> because we just have to remind each other that we are faced with... Um, uh, a transformation of the landscapes of news and new media technologies, giving new opportunities, new threats, and so on. And the overall question uh, for many people is which news media will survive, which news media will dominate. Uh, and in trying to answer this question, uh, we have to acknowledge that the future shape of the news landscape depends on uh, three things, at least, the three factors. Uh, one is... Um, media infrastructural forces. Um, the media are trying to get audiences to do certain things through doing in, in television scheduling uh, and in, in digital media uh, through algorithmic personalization, lists of most read articles, and so on. Um, secondly, uh, politicians are also players in this. Um, they make some choices in, in policy and regulation which set structural parameters uh, as they regulate, for instance, public service media versus uh, private media. And as in some countries, at least, for instance, in Denmark, uh, they uh, uh, give state subsidies to newspapers uh, on certain uh, conditions. Um, and then thirdly, um, of course, um, the... Uh, well, these developments depend a lot on users' appropriation and domestication of technologies, softwares, and platforms. And this is uh, obviously going to be my uh, focus here today. Uh, I'd also say that uh, in a bolder moment, I would even say that I think this is the most, the ultimately most important uh, dimension because it is users who are determining in the last instance what is going to happen. The research interest that I've been pursuing uh, in this uh, area has to do with how people are using the news media as a democratic resource and also, more broadly, as just an everyday resource for many other things than politics and democracy. Um, this research has a cross-media focus, so it's going beyond the, the research that used to be around for many years, the silo research in which you would look at the different media individually, so you look at television, you look at newspapers and so on. Uh, we're trying to adopt a cross-media focus and finding out how people are navigating in today's mediatized news landscape, 
mediatized is a word that may ring a bell to some people and not at all to others. And I just uh, arranged with Mira that this is not going into heavy theory. Uh, mediatization is one of those heavy theories which is gaining a lot of ground and which I personally find very interesting, but we'll just leave it here as a word. Uh, mediatized news, news landscape. Uh, I also use a metaphor sometimes to describe what it is I'm interested in, saying that I'm looking at how people make sense of their shopping in the supermarket of news. Uh, so this is the idea that this supermarket of news has all available news media on the shelves. And when I look at what people put into their shopping carts, this is their repertoires. I also stress at the beginning that my research mostly has a descriptive research purpose. Um, so what I'm trying to do is to build an empirical fact base uh, that maps news media as everyday and democratic resources. I'm very fond of the word mapping. I think that's sort of a defines uh, all of the research that I, that I do, um, try to, to draw maps, uh, then I'm not telling people how to find their way in those maps. I mean, I give them maps, and then people can find out where they want to go. Uh, so I'm not necessarily coming up with recipes for news organizations, what they should or could do. Um, the data sources uh, that I've been using... Uh, I distinguish between two kinds of, of sources. One I call high altitude, and the other is ground level. Uh, the high altitude uh, data sources are surveys. Um, even before my university and I joined the Reuters survey, the annual survey, uh, I was doing surveys in Denmark, as you can see here, um, monitoring the trends from 2008. And then in, I think, 2013, um, we joined the Reuters uh, survey and have been part of that ever since. So that's one kind of data insights that we uh, use to build this uh, uh, map. The other perspective is the ground level, um, where we apply something that I call here fortified qualitative cross-national analysis. We did a, a study uh, which I'm going to uh, in, a, in, a, in a moment, 2014 to 15. What I mean by fortified will become clear uh, later on. Um, and here we're looking at not just what people are doing, but what, uh, what they're doing means to them uh, and how they build news repertoires from what Nick Coulry has called the media manifold. So we do various kinds of reports. Uh, I display the Reuters report uh, because we are very pleased to be part of that and to help illuminate these things in a global comparative perspective. But uh, my colleagues and I at the University of Roskilde in Denmark also do an annual Danish report called The Danes' Use of News Media, uh, Patterns of Use and News Repertoires. This is the 2015 um, when Rasmus was at Roskilde, he and I collaborated on that. Now I'm working with my colleague uh, Mark Black-Örstein, who some of you may, may know. Um, and I'm not going into, into this a lot because, I mean, obviously there are many people both in this room and in this city who are much more qualified to do that. But um, I'll just show those of you who may not be entirely familiar with it. Uh, what, what kinds of knowledge we're building with these surveys. 
Uh, it's this kind of knowledge, and please uh, don't try to read the columns or the figures or anything. That's not the idea. I'm just indicating the kind of knowledge that we're building here has to do with whether people are using computers, smartphones, or tablets, to what extent they do that to get news. And you can see there are 10 countries. This is the way we do it in Denmark. We are not using the 36 countries that the, in the full report because we think it's more relevant to compare Denmark out here with some other countries which are more or less like Denmark uh, and still different. So we have nine other countries, Nordic countries, and from Europe, and I think uh, Canada, well, Canada is not on that one. We've, we've uh, included Canada uh, in, in later years. Um, so we are mainly comparing Denmark to uh, these uh, nine other countries. Um, just to show again the kind of thing we do here, we do demographics, of course. Here it has to do with how different platforms are used by different age groups. Um, the main source of news, well, people are... We're mapping all the variety of news sources people have, but which one is the main one that people mostly rely on? Uh, and finally, uh, we're looking at to what extent people go to the news brand directly and to what extent they uh, go through a third-party platform like Facebook or Google. But so far, so good um, for the surveys. Um, the surveys do produce a lot of interesting uh, knowledge, uh, but there's more to understanding news use uh, so we also have to look, uh, as, as I say here, underneath the statistics and look at life with the news at the ground level. Um, and this is because um, what the other slides show and what all the figures show is the statistical power balance, you could say, between the news platforms and the formats. But this is really a product of the everyday acts of thousands of people. Uh, and we need to explore people's lived experience with news media in the communicative figurations of everyday life. I'm also here just flagging a concept that is very fashionable in, in media and journalism studies. The communicative figurations uh, is one of those concepts. Uh, if any of you are interested in getting into what I mean with that, you're welcome to uh, talk to me afterwards. But the, the point of all this is to discover people's news repertoires. Well, what are news repertoires then? Well, uh, I put up a definition here, a very short one. You can have a much longer one, but this is a, a handy one. Uh, a, a news repertoire is a relatively stable cross-media pattern of media practices. Um, and in the uh, research literature, you can find many different kinds of, uh, of repertoires. There are individual media repertoires, um, which are produced along the lines of the shopping cart metaphor that I used before. So this is mainly what I'm doing. I'm looking at individuals and how they build uh, media repertoires. But you could also look at repertoires that belong to a location or a situation. Uh, and, and you can look at uh, exclusively at uh, technologies, technological platforms in terms of the repertoires or media brands or media content. And actually, the content is what I'm getting into uh, at the end of this talk, which is what I'm trying to, uh, to analyze right now. Um, repertoires uh, are a product of people's tastes and needs. Um, and um, it's important to see these repertoires as, in terms of what you see at the middle here, the meaningful relationality of their media use. The, the different platforms or, or formats are not to be seen as pearls on a string, but they are related, and it's this relationality 
that I'm interested in, uh, in mapping. Um, we theorize this uh, using a concept, which you can see here, called worthwhileness, uh, which means that we are when we're asking why is it that people are using news, different platforms and formats and contents and so on, and we say, well, uh, the, the news media that people use are those that they find worthwhile. Of course, this sounds like a banality, but... Uh, uh, worthwhileness is then divided into a number of dimensions or factors that we can sort of uh, uh, map uh, uh, separately. I'm not going into that, but I just indicate here that there are uh, what, what determines whether a news media is worthwhile or not has to do, for instance, with situational fit, whether a given news media fits into a given situation in the home or wherever. Uh, it also has to do with material factors, sort of the technolo technological affordances, uh, also financial commitments. That's a nice word for price. So whether people using different news media depends on whether they can afford it. Um, and finally, also there are socio-political and cultural aspects. So people are using certain media in order to be able to participate uh, in publics. There's another word here, it's uh, in the bottom line almost, it says connection. Uh, one of the uh, buzzwords uh, in this kind of research at the moment is public connection, a term that was invented by Nick Coolery, Sonia Livingstone and Tim Markham in a book they wrote in 2007, in which they're saying, well, this is what media use is really about. People are seeking many kinds of connection to the public or to networks uh, that are important to them. So this all belongs inside this concept of the worthwhileness, uh, and we call this a worthwhileness equation. So that's the way all these, uh, all these worthwhileness factors are interacting at the same time. In this research, we are going beyond the surveys. We're also going beyond the big data and trying to find repertoires with a qualitative perspective. So... The research interests that we've been pursuing here is, first of all, how do, media make, how do people make sense of their news media preferences? And how are their choices interrelated? This was the relationality that I mentioned before. Um, we're also looking at how can cross-media news repertoires be discovered with a qualitative approach. Uh, there are also many studies which have tried to find repertoires using quantitative uh, research, which is also very valuable, but we are using the qualitative uh, path here. Um, and we're not just looking at the news media sort of in, in isolation, but how are they contextualized as a part of daily life? Uh, and then how do these repertoires interrelate with forms of democratic engagement and participation? And finally, uh, an important aspect of the project uh, is also that we can use our approach to uh, make comparisons across countries. And actually, there were 12 countries participating in this, uh, doing exactly the same uh, research design. Uh, and there's a, a special issue of, of the journal called Participations, Journal of Audience and Reception Research, in which we report from all these countries and also do some of the comparative analysis. Uh, I'm not going into the comparative uh, study uh, today. Uh, but again, if, you, if you're interested, I can refer you to this uh, work. Well, and then strangely, you might say, I just said we're going to be using a qualitative method, and then I'm asking how we integrate the qualitative and the quantitative. And this is because um, the qualitative method that we're using is a little bit quantitative. Um, 
It's a mixed method, another key word from uh, much uh, research these days. Um, <clears throat> mixed methods, you, you hardly come across a study which is not, does not claim to be mixed method. Uh, it's sort of the new normal to be mixed method. Uh, but um, the difference between our mixed method and the bulk of mixed method research is that our uh, mixed method does not use the different methods sequentially. And normally you would do a qualitative study, a few people to uh, find out how to design a good questionnaire maybe, or you would start up with the questionnaire and then once you found something in the questionnaire you will want to go into more detail with some of the findings and you will do uh, individual interviews then. But we are not doing it one after the other. We are integrating qualitative and quantitative into the same research design. And I'll tell you how. Um, yeah, so I'm saying here in the, our solution, the qualitative methodology, uh, we integrate with a reliable quantitative generalization capability in the form of a method called Q-methodology. I'll show you what it is. Um, so the qualitative part of that is that we're doing depth interviews with individuals. We are asking people when we meet them in their home typically uh, about a day in the life. We're starting, we, we start them off by getting them to tell us what are they doing in the course of a day uh, with the media, from they get up in the morning until they get to bed at night. And we also, after this phase in the interview, we also have a card puzzle game. Uh, and while they're puzzling these cards, I'll show you in a minute, uh, we're asking them to think aloud. So what are they doing when they're puzzling these uh, cards around? The quantitative inspiration is that once they puzzle the cards around on a, on a grid, um, we can subject their card sorting to a factor analysis, which can help us find patterns, a typology in small samples, as it says. Then we also applied a short questionnaire, which is not part of what I'm saying today. Uh, and you may say, well, why are we doing that? Why are we not, why are we not just doing a straight qualitative analysis? Well, this is, well... Uh, <laughs> I'm a great adherent of qualitative research, and I have done a lot of it, and I will be doing a lot of it, but I think there is a sort of an Achilles heel to a, a lot of qualitative research, and that is that the, once you've uh, done the interviews and the transcripts and you sit down to analyze them, um, the interpretive procedures that you apply can be fairly opaque. So you don't really know how did you get from those transcripts to those particular patterns that you come up with. This method, Q method, uh, helps us to make that more transparent. I have to mention here also my collaborator at the University of Roskilde, uh, Christian Kopernagel. I've been working with him for, I think, almost 10 years. And the simple truth is I could not do any of what I've done without him because I am a novice when it comes to statistics. So he's doing the machine room stuff of the factor analysis. And if you have subtle questions about this, I cannot answer them. <laughs> we, in this study, we had 36 participants. And by coincidence, we also had 36 news media categories uh, on the, these cue cards, um, which are on the next slide. Uh, I'm just giving you here an impression of what they looked like. We had uh, uh, all these media types Represented on the cards, television news and current affairs, radio news and current affairs, newspapers on, in print, newspapers and broadcasters online news, there were nine types of that, and news on social media and other types of news. So this is what we put on the cards. 
and then you can see what it looks like uh, on each of these cards. There is one of these types uh, with examples so that people don't just get that type and cannot associate that with anything, but we give examples, and we did this in the same way in all these 12 countries in which we did the study. What they do here, they sort the cards, they handed the cards one at a time, and they, uh, they sort them. On the right-hand side, they are putting the cards which they think play a role in their everyday life. And at the other side, those that do absolutely not play a role in their life. And in the middle, those which may sometimes be used, about which they're more or less neutral, and so on. So that's what the, the pattern looks like. And uh, each of these uh, columns has a numerical value. The middle one is zero, and then it's four each way, plus, four, plus one, two, three, four, minus one, two, three, four. And this is the basis of the factor analysis. I'm not going into detail with that, partly because I'm not able to, um, but um, also it would be too time-consuming. Uh, but I just go rapidly to what we found um, in Denmark. We found 30, that these 36 news platforms and formats could be uh, seen to uh, fall into uh, six different repertoires. R1, online quality omnivore, Two, hybrid public service media lover. Three, light news snacker. Four, mainstream networker. Five, intellectual slash professional networker. And six, print addict. But there's a, there's a good core to your question, which is that by putting a label on it, we're already being very reductionist about something which is very complex. Uh, but on the other hand, there's no way getting around that. We have to name them something, just call, not just call them R1 and R4. We have to signal some of what is essential about them. Uh, so here is one. I'll get to the other one. This is the online quality omnivore. Um, each factor uh, repertoire comes, comes with, a, with, a, with a rank list of all the 36 news media that people uh, sorted. Uh, but here I'm only giving you the top two or the, the top five. Um, it's also useful to look at the very bottom, the, the bottom of the list. Uh, but here you can see these people, they are using a national quality newspaper online, and they're using born online news sites, uh, public service online, YouTube, and international news provider online. Here's another one, uh, light news snacker. You can see very quickly... Uh, the last one, the number five, public service text TV. Some of you may not even know what that is. Uh, it still exists in some countries, and it's still part of the news ecology in some countries. Uh, quite popular. Denmark, one of them, for instance. I'm a great fan. Uh, but it's mostly people my age who are great fans. Is that the one you asked about? Yeah. Um, well... You can see there are uh, uh, two social media news sources in the top five. There's the so-called other social media. Other means that they're not Facebook and they're not Twitter because these two had their own cards. Uh, so the other uh, were very prominent for these people. I guess that could be LinkedIn or something. Um, uh, and, well, you can see what else they... But, but they are relying to some extent on something that is uh, on networks uh, rather than picking up something or watching a television uh, news program. Finally, there are also print addicts, uh, which uh, look more or less what you would expect uh, them to look like, I guess. <clears throat> well, it's difficult when 
when you've done this kind of analysis, it's difficult to draw any hard and fast conclusions from these patterns. But I would think, and maybe you can help me there, or maybe you have some uh, ideas, that it can be valuable for news organizations to know just how complex the world of audiences is, which they are sending their news into. The merits of this Q method uh, is that it offers um, a methodological template, as I said in my very first uh, comment here, that can be applied in any news market, national level, regional level, local level. It, uh, the method provides what I see as an economical picture of very complex user practices. And I would also say it has myth-busting potential because the time spent on news media uh, is not always a direct measure of the perceived importance of that news media. So people spend a lot of time on news media they don't find important. Um, for instance, when they're watching television with others, for instance, uh, or when they're using uh, finding news at work. And on, uh, conversely, people often spend little time on news media they consider to be indispensable, but still they may be important to them. And I uh, mention here an example of maintaining the subscriber identity. I mean, in Denmark, there's a newspaper called Politiken, which is sort of like The Guardian, and many people will really think that that's part of their identity, to be a Politiken reader, uh, just like I think many people would feel the same thing about The Guardian, I guess. Uh, so, and they may not, they may, may not always uh, spend a lot of time on a daily basis, but still they would think this is of key importance uh, to me as a, as a human being. Um, another good thing, another merit of the, of the Q method is that Everything that people say in the, uh, when they do the day in the life thing and also the thinking aloud is a qualitative record that you can draw on. Once you've, uh, once you've uh, calculated the, uh, the repertoires, you can say, well, repertoire number one, that was eight people. And you can look at what all these people, eight people actually said and see, uh, put some uh, meat on the bones uh, and go into greater depth and do what ethnographers call thick description of what what hides inside that repertoire below just the pattern. And then, uh, finally, these national repertoires can be compared across cultures, which is what we also did, but which I'm skipping here today. Um, now I'm getting to the work I'm doing at the moment, uh, and I have no findings uh, because it's still ongoing. Uh, I'm trying in, in the research that I'm doing here to extend the scope of news repertoire analysis uh, and moving into the area of content. So I'm asking here, what do news content repertoires look like? Um, well, uh, why, why do I want to uh, investigate that? Well, um, I'm taking my point of departure in what we already know about people's content preferences. This comes typically, for instance, from... Um, um, something like the Reuters surveys, uh, because in the Reuters survey, we, uh, I don't think we're asking it this year, but in previous years, there's been a question, Q2, I think, in which we are asking people, how interested are you in the following types of news? And we then ask them international, political, local, business, entertainment, celebrity, weird news, and so on. And, and people can then give a score to that, and we can see, we can rank it. But this is sort of what I called before uh, the pearls on a string uh, <laughs> approach. So th there's no relationship between all these content categories. That's one way, and valuable knowledge in itself, but not sufficient. 
Uh, another way in which we know what people like is something we come across all the time, uh, namely uh, when uh, news uh, producers are aggregating the clicks on the news site so we get the most read stories. Uh, and we hear that these are probably almost always entertainment stories, a celebrity and weird news. Uh, these will dominate um, the most read lists. <clears throat> Well, on the basis of such insights, uh, it is very common to draw conclusions about the state of democracy. Uh, and it's usually a story of decay. Uh, because it seems from these, um, these kinds of, of measurements that people are avoiding the public affairs news. Um, uh, and um, it is assumed here that you can read people's civic engagement of these most read stories, for instance. Here is a quote from uh, a book by Boskowski and Mitchellstein, 2013, in which they were looking precisely at the gap between the most read stories and the stories that journalists uh, thought were the most important ones. So they're saying here, although journalists at Mondo, it's in Spain, and Pais emphasized the trials and tribulations of the rule political, ruling political party in their editorial offerings for that day, consumers of both sites showed a preference for sports, scandal, and romance. So this is deplorable, isn't it? I mean, people didn't want to read the, the political stories. They just wanted to read about sports, scandal, and romance. Well, I've been asking myself, is this true? Um, and you might have guessed, I don't think it's true. <laughs> I think a corrective is needed. Um, I think the uh, conclusions, for instance, by Boskowski and Mitchelsing, but many others uh, too, um, these conclusions are flawed. I don't think it can be legitimately concluded from their analysis that people don't care about public affairs. Um, and I would say the non-public affairs stories make it into the top five because more readers read each of them than read each of the public affairs stories. And this is sort of winner-takes-all logic. It's not necessarily because few people read public affairs stories. Uh, so the most popular, the most consumed lists do not show the true composition of people's news diets. Then um, how can we move towards a more or a corrective picture of news story preferences? What do news readers really want to read about? Um, so there's a need to not just ask about general news types as we do in the survey, um, and there's a need to ask about concrete stories that people actually encounter. So uh, I came up with a research design here, helped by some people who are in the room and who are back at the Reuters Institute. Uh, so we are talking to 24 people in, a, in and around Oxford. So again, this is a qualitative study, essentially. It's not going to be a representative and so on. It's like all qualitative research. We uh, give them, I don't know why I'm so fond of the number 36, mm -hmm. Uh, but <laughs> I think, well, by the way, I do think I know it's because you want to get as many um, stimuli into this study as you can. And I think the upper limit of what people can meaningfully handle is about 36. If, if it gets beyond that, they will sort of lose a sense of uh, what the relations are. Um, and we are uh, giving them uh, a similar Q sort activity to the one I showed you before. 
in which we are asking them when we present them with these 36 news stories, how likely would you be to want to read these kinds of stories if you came across them on a normal day, on your smartphone, on your computer, in a printed newspaper, or in your Facebook newsfeed? Likelihood of, uh, of, of reading. And these are what, this is what some of the cards look like. Um, Paris Council sues Airbnb for 43 million euro a day. Paris is seeking damages from Airbnb, uh, accusing it of failing to respect laws designed to curb holiday rentals. This is one story. Would you click on that? Would you pick that up if you came across it? Um, international story from India, uh, one from British politics uh, about breaking rules and luxury flats as a Trump story. Um, also some local, plan to redevelop city street, could reinvigorate covered market. Plans to demolish and rebuild part of the corn market street have been welcomed by civic leaders. You think that's a good idea, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Animal crackers, outrage over pet treats that cost the equivalent of 159 pounds a kilogram. Go head over heels to taste the real Italy, well, and so on. Um, a stalker nearly destroyed our marriage. Uh, crying war boys on suicide watch. You remember war boys? Giant drone can do everything from rescue humans, humans to de-icing wind turbines. Bullying drives Muslims to homeschooling. There's a Kim lookalike. A banker from Essex is rocketing to fame after becoming a Kim Jong-un lookalike. Would you click on that? Dog lick cost me my legs and face. Saliva got into a tiny scratch. A dog lover lost his legs, five fingers, and part of his face when he got sepsis after his pet licked him. Many people thought that was important. Uh, I mean, I've been taking part in some of these interviews. I mean, there, there are uh, 24 of them, and I, I was part of the first six of them. Uh, and I really noticed that people thought, even though it's, it's a kind of a clickbait story, uh, it's still something people think, well, this is actually a, an urgent problem. Uh, so many people put that towards the end of, uh, of the stories that they would, were likely to read. Uh, by the way, I said I was part of the six. Uh, the rest of it is done by Kentar. I've been fortunate enough to be able to commission this to, to Kentar Research, uh, who are doing uh, the, uh, the interviews. Well, I'm just showing you these. There are, there are 36 altogether. And this is what it looks like when someone has uh, sorted the cards. Um, so it's the same mechanism as I showed you before. I, I want to tell you a little bit about the stories um, because there's a long process behind selecting those 36. Um, they come from a wide variety of news media, um, print and online. Um, the stories represent many different topic types international, EU, domestic politics, lifestyle, and under lifestyle there's food, uh, there's uh, cars, uh, many, many different things. Football, health, cricket, local, the environment. And each story, as you could see here, um, is shown to the participant in the form of a headline, sometimes a subheadline, and a neutral font and no illustrations. This was a major problem, and uh, maybe you think this is uh, a dubious way to do it. Maybe you would think we should have shown people sort of the real, what it really looks like, so you could tell whether it was the Daily Mirror or 
the male or the guardian and so on. But we decided that if we really want to know, to not have a bias coming from what people think about different news sources, we, we have to get the content uh, in pure form, sort of. So that's what we ended up uh, deciding. We also have to um, uh, make each story meaningful in itself uh, because uh, we have to use the same stories over a period of two or three weeks, so we cannot have yesterday's news uh, on these cards. So it has to be a story that's, that's meaningful in itself, uh, not depending on immediacy. Um, we also try to, to select subjects that cater to diverse interests and tastes and, tastes and styles. Um, so um, the resulting configuration that each person comes up with is then factor analyzed, and we find patterns of similarity and difference. We find news content repertoires. Um, and it may have possible value, again, along the lines that I said before, uh, that simply knowing how complex people's uh, interests are may provide some kind of direction for a bespoke uh, news production. But as I said before, I don't have any findings. Um, so this presentation is to be continued in due course. And I think this is also about the time that uh, I was given. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.